Our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In this series, we've been exploring Jesus' family system. We've been exploring our own on Monday afternoons and evenings. And here is the simple truth of life. We are because others were. The building stands because others build it, and we are maintaining their work. Our liturgy looks the way it does because others developed the rituals that transferred the meaning. I mean, the past isn't even past. The past is what the present happens to be doing now. The future is what the past will be doing when we get to it, then. But I'm not fatalistic about it. We do have our choices. Jesus was tempted in the desert. He was tempted with wealth and fame and power and resisted them all. Unlike the story we heard last Sunday, expertly delivered by Megan, David, once a humble shepherd, now a king. Some would say the best king Israel ever had. But he was an adulterer. He abused power. He got caught up in wealth and fame and power, and unlike David, Jesus said no. And in Jesus, we find no abandoned women or children in the life of Christ. In fact, quite the opposite. The guy just seemed to collect them. The first preachers of the resurrection were women. And he said, suffer not the children, let them come to me. Jesus picked up the outcasts, the abandoned, and invited them back into community. While this should be the bedrock of our faith, it seems the modern church is bent on making outcasts rather than welcoming them. We seem to have lost the plot. Folks aren't joining church like they used to, and they largely see us as an exercise in vast hypocrisy. The church is full of hypocrites, they say, and we respond, yes, and there's always room for more. I guess the question before us as a church is where do you turn to when you lose your identity? When you forget who you are? We are because others were. When we lost our identity as a nation, when we were being tested as to what type of nation we would become, the great leaders of our past returned us to our founding document. According to Heather Cox Richardson, a great historian, she says when we are faced with a national crisis, we return not to the Constitution, but to the Declaration of Independence. And specifically the phrase, all men are created equal. This phrase is radical even to this day. 
all people being equal is the American experiment. All people being equal is America and what it means to be American. Here there is no case system, caste system, however you pronounce that. Here we have no monarch. There is no authoritarian strongman who will tell us what to do and who we are. Noble blood means nothing here. It's just a little, isn't that interesting that I have that one Scottish noble way back 500 years ago that did something wrong, which is why I'm here now and not in a castle in Scotland. <laughs> noble blood means nothing. Because time and time again, the American experiment has proven that great talent can come from anywhere. Great ideas, great leaps in society from average, everyday people who hear a call and pursue it with abandon. All people equal. And we govern ourselves. This is the great American experiment. And when it was tested in the Civil War, or what Frederick Douglass called the slave owner's rebellion, Lincoln returned us to our founding phrase in his Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. Not everybody agreed with this. When hearing it, Vice President Alexander H. Stevens of the Confederate States vehemently disagreed with Lincoln, stating in 1861 that the great truth is, quote, the Negro is not equal to the white man, and slavery's subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. And sadly, there are many who believe it in our day and age, here and now. They believed it so much that after the Civil War, they put laws on the books. Our own state of Ohio, they were known as the Black Laws. And our ancestor, H.G. Blake, worked to end them in his political career. In the South, they called him Jim Crow. And that was the return of America's original temptation to believe that some are better than others. And it was in that era that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream one founded in America's original promise in our founding statement, which he mentions twice in his speech. But the better known, more famous part is when he said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I was rushing the chorus there. And I get a little choked up thinking of King delivering that speech on our nation's mall. When we are unsure, we as a nation return to that original promise of our country, everyone created equal. And we may fight over what exactly that means, who exactly that entails, but that is the original statement as to what we are about as a nation and as a people. It is good to note that our Congregationalist ancestors predate this country. And they would agree as they had a massive hand in the founding of this country. For we had enough of the arguments of popes and kings. We wanted a simple faith. We wanted the Bible written in our own language. Now we have like 52 varieties of our, the Bible in English. But back then you could be killed for asking for that. 
Our congregationalist forebears wish to strip away the bloated tradition and find Jesus the center, the cornerstone of our faith. The pioneer and perfecter, as it is written in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We wanted Jesus as the sole head of the church, not some king, not some pope, as written in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, among other places. We are the church searching for unity in Christ. We work out our faith with one another as we respond to the needs of our local community. No one tells us what to do. This is a radical statement of faith and one that led us to leave our homeland in England and land on these shores. It was this faith that led our ancestors to ordain the first black man, the first woman, the first openly gay man, among many other firsts in our proud history. Granted, we haven't gotten it all right. The Salem witch trials, not a good look for us. It did spawn two Hocus Pocus movies later, which I'm thankful for, but I could have skipped it had we known better. It is the promise of the United Church of Christ that is compelling to me. Having been raised in the church and wounded by it, I thought I was done. I thought I would join the fastest growing religion in our country, the nuns. Those who still might be spiritual, but they ain't coming here to find that spirit. People who don't attend or identify themselves with any religion or denomination. Yet Kate and I in our 20s stumbled upon the UCC and we are still captivated by you 20 years later. We were founded before this country. We have an OI, an operating system, that's a little, it's a little dated. It was designed before there were streaming services and the demands of school and travel sports. And yet sometimes the old ways are the best ways. It feels like we're in search of an identity. I once read of a church that was having an identity crisis. They were debating an issue, as Congregationalists do. We talk and talk and talk, and we decide to vote on it, and then we vote to have a vote, and then we argue with the vote. It's, it's exhausting, but that's what we do. That's our tradition. It's awesome. But this particular church was struggling to adapt with new technology. This brand new technology. Should we or shouldn't we adapt to Ben Franklin's new potbelly stove? And they were having this identity crisis about having this potbelly stove or not. Because the guys down the way, because there was Congregationalist Church right down the street, they had one, but what they do isn't indicative of what we're going to do. We'll take our own vote. So they debated, and they decided not to get a potbelly stove. They didn't want their people becoming too comfortable, as the Christian should seek austerity and simplicity. Potbelly stoves would be hedonistic. Plus, having all that warmth might remind congregants of the fires of hell and not the promise of heaven. Therefore, we will do nothing with Ben Franklin and his cursed potbelly stove, and that church closed. They closed. Everybody went down the street to the warm church. But back in that time, one might not have enough wood or food at one's house, but the church might have both. Odds are, with enough of us pulling together, we'd find enough for all. So it was preferable to spend evening hours in community rather than cold and hungry and isolated at home. 
I think we're a potbelly stove congregation. Y'all are warm. But many of us don't have that problem. We have the opposite problem. We would rather stay in our safe, warm houses where we can control whatever we want to see. It's safer there than dealing with people. We can stream any movie imaginable. We can play any album through Spotify. Well, not Garth Brooks, but we're working on him. This choice in freedom has left us with the feeling that it's safer to interact with screens and then with people. Old McDonald has a burger joint. And as you go in there, you're going to, first thing is seeing those kiosks and those screens. I don't work here. I want to tell you what I want. I don't want to punch it in. Maybe it's just I'm being crotchety and crabby 42-year-old. But it feels like we're losing the sense that we can talk with one another. Everything's just so darn serious and that we divide over everything. There's a football game later. We divide on that. And then we're going to gripe and complain some. Some are going to gripe and complain when a pop star is shown for three seconds out of a four and a half hour long game. We're fighting on that. And Taylor Swift is a national treasure. Shut your faces. We're Team Taylor here in this place. So go Taylor's boyfriend. He's from this part of the woods too, Northeast Ohio. So yay, Kelsey's. And if you're a Niners fan, yay you. Whatever. We're here. We'll vote on it later. Which team we will support. But everything's just so, just so divisive. It's just sick of it. It's tiring trying to preach to you when everybody wants to hear what they want to hear and everybody's got their own opinion about every little thing. I do too, if you haven't noticed. But I like David Brooks. He has been a balm to my soul here recently. And he has critiqued hyper-individualism in our society, especially in his book, The Second Mountain, which I keep reading. And I'm like, oh, we, what? We need to, people need to read this book. John Gendervin gave it to me. He said, you remind me of this guy. And it just sat on my shelf. Now I wish I could talk to John about what he saw in this book, because I am on fire by what David has to say. He's saying that an excessive focus on individualism where personal desires and aspiration take precedence over communal values have detrimental effects not only on our society but on our persons as well. It's important to note that Brooks is not advocating for a total rejection of individualism altogether but rather a balance that incorporates a sense of common good and individual values and finding those shared values and it's always a balance. We're always doing this. I'm doing this. Very few of us are locked in. Some of you calmer folks do a little wobble. That's good. I need to learn from you. Brooksing is asking us for a more holistic understanding and well-being that considers both the individual and the collective flourishing of our society. We here in the UCC know what that is. For our common identity is found in two words, autonomy and covenant. Autonomy means you are your person. You each have a right and responsibility to live your own life and find a faith that means something to you, to make your own decisions. Yet we must balance that with covenant. We are bound to one another through a promise of the heart, 
to show up for one another, to pray for one another, to seek unity in Christ, and occasionally find that unity in Christ. For when God came to us in Christ, God came through people, through a genealogy, with giants of faith and names that we lost and we've forgotten their story. Names and places and people and four bold women, unexpected people, did their best. They wrote their own stories, warts and all, into the DNA of God. And we are here because they were here. We are here because our faith has been passed down by so many saints all the way back to Christ himself, who we still acknowledge as the head of this church. Meg and I are leaders here, but we cannot rule by any authoritarian means. For one does not tell a Congregationalist what to do. We get no vote on anything. We can walk with you, beside you, we can pray, we can try to influence you, but ultimately it's up to you as the congregation and your collective discernment and vote of how best to go forward. We will very rarely tell you what to do. I like how David Brooks quotes a Unitarian pastor who writes, We need to learn the virtue of staying put and staying true, of choosing again what we chose before. In my view, that's one of the main reasons we come to church. We're here not so much to take spiritual progress each and every week, but that's wonderful when that happens. Rather, he continues, we come mostly for consistency, for what remains the same from week to week, the comfort of the liturgy, the solace of the music, the reassuring sights of familiar faces, the enduring presence of ancient rites and timeless symbols. We're here to remind ourselves of values that unite us and commitments that keep us headed in the right direction. We are here to choose again what we have chosen before. So church, I choose you. Again and again. I choose you. Even though you keep me up at night, you get me out away from my family at 7 o'clock meetings, night after night, I, you do provide me the office west of Cool Beans, so thank you for that. I hope to stay put for a good long while, but it's not without worry and anxiety. And we've had our successes as well. We have covered many, many miles together. And it feels like I'm just getting started. When I was on a retreat this past week, I was looking for peace, a sign from God, something to still a roiling, I don't know what happening in here and in here. So I sat for this guided meditation. Picture a garden. And I'm like, no. And I left. <laughs> and I put seven miles on that day. And I was thinking of you. And the word that came to me, and you can vote on this later. We got a May meeting coming up. You can take it there as new business. We must do nothing alone. In my ministry, in our way of doing church, we are the United Church of Christ. We are connected to other churches who can inform and guide us on whatever we seek to do. 
to engage our association, our conference, our national bodies, and resourcing whatever way we wish to go. We collect their wisdom, and then we decide what our next best step is. No one's going to check. No one's going to care. Hopefully they will once we get started feeding and clothing and sheltering people, the work of the church. But nothing alone. We can mine our past, our scriptures, our holy tradition, going all the way back to the first century. We have riches galore. And yet, as Christ said, it is the wise who brings out the old treasures with the new. We are the church here and now. We must choose again what we've chosen before. We are all created equal. No kings, no popes, no authoritarians welcome. The local church is the head of the church. We call our own shots. We value people. We value education. We value hard work. We value lifting up the voices of the outcast, the widow, the orphan, the stranger within our gates. For Christian are called to welcome outcasts and not make them. And we find our stories written in the Bible. The Bible is an amazing mirror, but it is an awful God. Too many churches these days are worshiping the Bible, calling it the Word of God, saying that they follow literally every word. They don't pick and choose. Yet I don't see them stoning many for adultery or keeping a kosher diet. I used to think those stories were just collections in an old, dusty book. So small when my life was so big. But as I grew and I studied and I faced both grief and celebration too big for me, I see that these stories are the underlying shape of our reality, scripts that we repeat to this very day. And as we read these stories, they're going to do their slow work on us until one day, quite to our surprise, we'll have a transfiguration, a mountaintop moment where our ancestors are standing right there behind us. There's Jesus clothed in white, dazzling white as no one could bleach it or OxyClean or whatever you use. A dazzling display of the divine that was right beside us all along. We are because others were. We are love incarnate walking around. We are the living echoes of lives that have gone on long before. Abraham left and wandered in search of God's promised land. Jacob wrestled with his faith. Moses led his people on a meandering journey from bondage, and we too must be free of what binds us and bonds us and oppresses us. Elijah and his upsetting social critiques, his religious... Yet the truth is, we are because they were. The psalmist asked, Soul, why are you so downcast? If you have ever asked that question, you are in good company. King David abused his power. We're tempted with whatever meaning, little powerful things that we get to abuse that. And we frequently do. On the internet as we complain how there's no parking here in Medina. We can learn from how Nick North put it last week about the shady ladies of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Shady ladies not because what they did was shady, but because they had shade thrown at them. 
as we all have. We must learn to deal with that and respond in kindness. Their lives can form our own lives. They were and we are. And for me, it all leads to Jesus, our way, our truth, and our life, the sole head of the church. His ways are the best ways, meekness, resisting temptations of wealth, fame, and power. He tells us puzzling parables. He takes us up a hike up a mountain. And we're like, I would have worn my hiking sandals, Lord. We were complaining in the back, are we there yet? As children often do. And then we're surprised with Jesus talking with Elijah and Moses, and we're left to puzzle all that out. We might just be bewildered like Peter, who stammers hospitality or frightened into silence like James or John. But they all go back off the mountain together in covenant to do the work of letting love shine through, displaying the divine fabric of this life we're caught up in together. So friends, let us choose again what we have chosen before. The love of God, the way of Christ, and to follow the Holy Spirit. To learn to love one another as Christ loved us. To fully engage in our autonomy, for no one else will live our life for us. And yet enter into covenant, for you don't have to do your work alone. This is the witness of our ancestors. And we are here because they were here. And in so many ways, they still are. Thanks be to God. Amen.